0: Okay, welcome everybody. Welcome to our City on a Hill conference at New Life Church. This is the breakout session, crafting—I t- don't know how they phrased it, but I know crafting is the first word, right? Crafting intentional engagement for your church. Um, my name is Rion Haynes. I serve as the outreach pastor at New Life, uh, overseeing everything we do in our city, nationally, and then around the world. And uh, if this is not the class that you thought this was, then none of us will pay attention to you sneaking out, okay? I want to make sure you are where you want to be. Um, If this is where you want to be, I'm super excited to have you with me and with us today. And hopefully we can have a little bit of dialogue and discussion to help craft uh, intentional engagement for your church. Um, New Life Church, I've been here eight years. Just to give you a little bit of a background on me, uh, I'm originally from South Africa, have worked in several mega churches, and I've been at New Life now eight years. Uh, What's amazing about New Life is you are sitting in the very building where, if you know anything about missions, the 1040 window was crafted. This is where the idea of the unreached people groups reaching the lost, reaching the unreached, targeting those that have never heard about the gospel. This is where that idea was crafted and this is the building in which the 1040 window concept was conceived. So New Life Church has an extremely rich heritage thinking about how do we reach the planet for the sake of Christ? How do we take the gospel to the ends of the earth? However, when I showed up eight years ago, I came with this unbelievable expectation, right? This is that church. If you were a missionary, a missions-minded person, this was like arriving at Mecca, right? I was looking for the Kaaba, where can I circle it just to feel like I arrived home. However, when we started really digging into how effective was our engagement, we found that we were extremely scattered, extremely non-effective, that we had the ability to generate big ideas at a highly strategic level, but the pragmatic implementation of it was non-existent. Um, that it didn't correlate to the intentionality we presumed we had at a high level. That same intentionality was not found on the ground level. Um, and that is and continues to be the trend among churches around the world. Not just in the United States, anywhere. I've been to 70 countries now, and I do a lot of this kind of stuff with churches around the world. This is the trend in the body of Christ that we do not spend a lot of intentional time to craft our engagement, whether it's in the city. And I'm not saying everybody, I'm saying, right, this is the general trend. You might be hitting it out of the park, you might be able to teach us a lot of stuff. We're on a journey to learn. But as we dialogue together, we're just going to look at a few basic questions to ask in order to craft intentional engagement, okay? So I always say when I meet pastors and I meet leaders around the world, we spend more money, more intentionality, more resources to craft a worship experience on a Sunday morning than we do in crafting our missional engagement into the community. That's what the average church will spend more money on a website. We'll spend more money on a worship band. We'll spend more money on aesthetics. We'll spend more money on furniture. We'll spend more, and not just money, but intentionality. We'll get a group together to design our lobby, right? We will not get a group together to design our engagement in the city. And that is something we just have to be very honest about, right, right? And so if you're a leader, um, I'm assuming there are not many senior pastors in a workshop like this. Sometimes they send an executive pastor or someone else to come and represent them. But my encouragement to you would be is to challenge your leadership to not, say, forego the intentionality of the other stuff. But add intentionality to what you do in engagement in and around your city. So the first question I have, and, and I'm going to make this available at the end. This was in your table, but I had them get it away from you. Otherwise, you won't listen to me, right? You'll be reading this the whole time, and I'll just be wasting my time, right? So I am going to give you what I'm talking about at the end of the session. So you can take notes, but you'll also get this at the end, okay? So the first question I have is, why craft intentional engagement? I mean, you have to answer that question for yourself and for your leaders because the why helps you sit down and focus with missional purpose into crafting. If you don't know why you're doing it, right? And so I just wrote something very simple down. It empowers you to direct your resources. Now, Saying that might sound like a very simple statement, but there are four streams of resources every church possesses. The first thing is what? Let's see if, you, if we can kind of come up with this together, right? What's the, what's the greatest resource your church possesses? Your people, absolutely. Okay, so the first resource is what I call your people, and I define that as their raw hands and feet. Just people, okay? Okay. Similar to that, what is the next level of resource you possess? And I'm going to give you a clue. It still has to do with your people. Word of mouth. Say that again. Word of mouth. Word of mouth okay. But what, what, is, what do your people possess? Gifts, right? So the second stream of resources in your church is your, what I call your intellectual property. Your gifts. What, what is in your church that God has sent for you to steward that is not just the raw hands and feet of your people, but their intellectual property, their gifts, their talents, okay? The third thing is the easiest. This is what every missionary that comes to you asks for this thing, right? What? Money, right? Finances. We all have some, right? Missionaries always assume we have more than we really do, but, you know, we all have some money that God has asked us to steward. And then lastly, this one people rarely get, is what I call advocacy. You have more power in advocating for a cause or for a person or for a ministry. I can raise more money by advocating than I can raise at New Life Church. I can honestly, if if it's something we truly believe in as a church and we truly want to get behind... We can advocate for something and raise half a million dollars, a million dollars. We could never write that check. But our power of advocacy is something that people don't always recognize. So those are your resources in your church. So the reason I say we craft engagements is so that we can empower the direction of our resources. Okay? Intentional crafting. Matthew twenty eight eighteen, we all know this passage very well. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you till the end of the age. I always ask this question, who is Jesus speaking to? It's not a trick question. To who? Disciples, right? Primarily. Okay, who quotes this scripture more than anybody in our day and age? Missionaries. We have made the execution of the Great Commission the responsibility of missionaries. And the church has outsourced the command that Christ has given the church to missionaries. This wasn't a command given to missionaries. This is a command given to Christ followers. This is a command given to the church. And so it is the responsibility of the church to engage in intentional missional engagement. I'm going to divert a little bit from what I prepared, but if we look at missions history... In the United States or in the West, at the turn of the 1900s, the largest geographical expansion of missions happened around the world, of kingdom expansion through the student volunteer movement. The gospel went to more places on planet Earth during the late 1800s into about 1920, the greatest by far geographical expansion of the gospel, okay? The issue that came up was because it was missionaries that went, you will find most missional organizations had their founding between the years 1920 and 1970. For about a 50-year period in our history, YWAM, Navigators, um, Operation Mobilization, um, Frontiers, uh, the IMB... You can go down the list. Every major missional organization started there. Why? Because when missionaries came to the church and said, work with us in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, the church said no. We're gonna abdicate that, you guys start it and we'll come alongside. And for a large period of time, until the year two thousand, more or less, the church outsourced what I called missions. We worked with organizations and came alongside them and said, you guys do missions, and we'll just give you money, and we'll give you people, and you guys are responsible. Around the year 2000, and again, you got to be gracious, it's about a five, ten-year window on either side uh, with the Joshua Project, the 1040 window, the conception of reaching the ends of the earth. The church for the first time said, we want to take responsibility for this thing, and it caused a major conflict between parachurch organizations and churches. There's this unspoken and sometimes very clear tension between churches and organizations that focus on missional engagement because we're in this season of relearning how to work together with churches owning the mission story, okay? So that's diverting a little bit from what I wanted to say, but just to give you a little bit of background into the times that we live in. Okay, I am missing a page. Oh, no, there it is. Intentionality in determining your strategy is the first step towards engaging your church in the mission to which God has called you. And I talked about that. The average church spends more time, money, and resources on planning the feel and the look of the church than they do on carefully crafting the activities of their missional engagement questions to consider so here we're starting with crafting your engagement as a church these are questions i ask churches or organizations when i work with them okay are you engaged and where okay second question is why are you engaged and why there You see, here's the thing. Is your engagement primarily reactionary or proactive? What I mean by that is the the average church, the average organization around the world is much more reactive than responsive. Let me give you a great example. Haiti. How many people in this room are engaged in Haiti? Right? We are. Okay? So I'll raise our hand. We are. I'm shocked. Okay, more money has gone into Haiti after the earthquake in a six-month period than the entire 1040 window during the same time. Today, if we measure the transformational outcomes, and I'm talking about from the church. I'm not talking about just social action from, the, from government. I'm talking about church money. More church money has gone into Haiti to help rebuild Haiti for the sake of the kingdom, in a six-month window, if we measure that income going into Haiti, more money went into Haiti than the rest of the 1040 window, two and a half billion people that have never heard the gospel. Why? Because our missional engagement sometimes borders on humanism rather than theological engagement. If you want to listen to a phenomenal message that will really Bring the point of humanistic engagement versus theological engagement home. It's a message by Paris Reedhead. The title of the message is 10 Shekels in a Shirt. We have to confront our motivation of why we do missions. Do we do missions simply and purely because we want to better circumstances for our fellow human beings? Or do we want to engage with them because we truly want them to discover Christ and the reality of salvation in his kingdom and the, his identity for them? Okay? And so these are, these are sound like simple questions because we all would say, oh, yes, we, we want to have people know Jesus. I, I can evaluate almost any mission's engagement and point to you in our own engagement where we are way more humanistic than we are theological. We go to help people, building orphanages, feeding programs. All these things have humanistic bent to them rather than theological premises. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing those things if they're built upon a theological premise. Here's an article out of the Wall Street Journal. So if any of you know the Wall Street Journal, not a very church-friendly newspaper. Okay, The Wall Street Journal writes this article, and I'm going to paraphrase. It says... After a research into Honduras, where two groups went to help locals, one just a standard NGO and one a mission group from a church, they polled the the locals in asking, did they notice the difference between the regular NGO and the church? And the locals said no. And so the Wall Street Journal makes this statement, says it would be good for the church— To tell people why they are there, rather than assume that people can connect the dots. And it's attributed to the quote by St. Francis, right, of a sissy that said, you know, preach the gospel and sometimes use words. And so we think we don't have to say to people why we're there. We don't have to preach the gospel. Our actions of love would convince them of Christ. The problem is, in the time of St. Francis, it's not that preaching the gospel was the problem, it was their seclusion into society that was the problem. St. Francis never said, stop preaching the gospel. He said, we've got that part down, but now we have to live it out in action. And my concern is, today, it's the flip. We do so much social work and so much good work in the world and in our cities but we're afraid to preach the gospel as we go. Everything we do must prepare the way to talk about Jesus Christ. If what you do is not merely a tool to talk about Christ, you're simply engaged in humanism. You have to measure the outcomes of why you do what you do. I can read article after article after article for you. In 1910, at the World Missions Conference in Edinburgh, Scotland, 75% of students at the World Missions Congress said that their primary responsibility was to build churches around the world, plant churches and raise up leaders. Now, at the World Missions Convention, less than 5% of people say it's even a priority more than 75% say building orphanages, HIV, AIDS, malaria, and humanistic endeavors should be the focus of the church. We live in a time and in a day where the light of Christ is needed more than ever before. And so I don't want to preach because I can on that forever. Um, but just asking you the question, are you proactive in designing your engagement or reactive Are you reacting to earthquakes? Are you reacting to disasters? Are you reacting to needs? Or the reason you you design a grid is so that you can be proactive. A grid tells you why you say yes, and a grid tells you why you say no. A grid emphasizes the reality of what scripture says we are the body of Christ. Some are the head, some someone's the hand, someone's the foot. We cannot be all things to all people. If we're not engaged in evangelism as a primary focus, and new life is not. Now, we'll engage in evangelism if it's a tool to get to church planting because that's one of our primary focuses. But we're not going to just do crusades around the world. That's not one of our focuses. But it might be yours, right? So if someone comes to me and says, hey, we want to do crusades, can you work with us? We pull out our grid, and I'll give you our grid so you can see how we designed it. And we say, that's just not what we do. But find another church that does that. But be okay to say no to stuff. If you don't know how to say no, I can help you. Believe me. (laughs) Here's what I say to people. I try to put a positive spin on it, right? I have, my team and I, we have the privilege of saying yes to 6% of the requests we get. I have to say no 94% of the time. And believe me, I've heard it all, right? People are gonna burn in hell because of me, right? Because I said no. And it's like, you know, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I have to stay focused on who we are and what we're gonna do, okay? You won't be popular when you make decisive actions. Okay. Next question, where are you wasting resources? Next question, and you're going to get this again. Does your church's city, national, and global engagements reflect the values of your church? One thing that we're going to look at in designing a missional engagement is this reality. You should only export who you are. So we have worked uh, with some friends of mine. Uh, We always, when we have these roundtable discussions, there's a lot of humor that comes out. There's a church um, in the U.S., and if if I gave you the name of the church, all of you, everybody in this room will know who this church is. And you might know when I start describing, right? This is probably the premier church when it comes to technology, to developing apps, to developing platforms, to developing social media, to developing engagement, right? This church is known for this. When we looked at their mission strategy, they went around the world and planted orphanages. And the question was, why? Why? I have people in India screaming and crying. Please bring us people who understand technology to help us as a church. I have people in India screaming and crying. Please bring us worship leaders and artists to help us. Hey, how many of you have been to India? How many Indians are in the room? Okay, not many. Okay, because so, I always want to be careful how it says. Indian music is not very broad in its spectrum. I don't know how to, I just want to say it nicely, right? I was at a conference in India, 50,000 people, 50,000 people speaking at a conference in worship. I think maybe, I mean, if I give a lot of credit, there were three notes in all of the worship songs. It's like ding, 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 ding for like two hours, right? And I'm thinking, Lord Jesus, please send a worship leader over here, right? And when I talk to the Indians, they're like, please bring us worship leaders because we don't know how to write music. We, don't, we, we just know how to bang on the piano and sing. And so we have churches that are that's so wealthy in worship leaders and writing music and crafting songs and they go to India to feed hungry people. You have to figure out who are you as a church? What's your DNA? And that DNA articulation and narrative becomes the premise on which you build your engagement. Okay? Any questions or comments at this point? The matrix is going to be available to you, Brianna. Did you copy the matrix? I have a copy up here if you haven't copied it. Yes, you will get the matrix. Okay, next question. Are you measuring your outcomes? There's the difference between outputs and outcomes. will give you a quick example. We have a crusade, right? We want to measure how many churches are planted as a result of the crusade. We have a crusade, 20,000 people attend. That is an output. Five years later, we measure how many churches was, were planted as a result of that crusade. How many people discipled? That's an outcome. An outcome is the long-term effect of your engagement. An output is the immediate measure of your engagement. Most churches around the world and mission organizations simply measure outputs. We've distributed. We work with an organization, and I love to talk to you about the organizations we support because I think they're the best in the world. We work with an organization called ELAM works in Iran. One of the biggest ministries that work in Iran, distributing Bibles. Okay, so they've now distributed over 1 million Bibles in Iran. That's a great output. The outcome, however, is that we can measure on average that every single Bible reaches about 8 families, and on average, a Bible has the ability to, to convert. Not that the Bible converts, but you know what I mean, that... Through biblical exposure, up to thirty people can come to salvation by through the distribution of a single Bible. Iran right now fastest growing church on the planet by percentage. Okay, God's done doing amazing, amazing things in Iran. Um, okay, crafting your engagements. Here we go into steps for crafting your engagement. First thing is asking the question: What is your DNA? Now, here is how you know what your DNA is. It's not what you think it is. What do others say about you? It is amazing to me when I meet with churches and leaders, when I say, who are you guys? And they tell me, da-da-da-da-da. And then I talk to the average guy sitting in the pew, and it's two worlds apart. Okay, so what what do we know about New Life Church? What is part of our DNA, right? You guys can tell me. Right? I'm not going to tell you. What's part of our DNA? Just give me one thing. Music. Worship. Right? You know that about us. So we know that about us. But if I told you, man, our primary DNA is, again, you know, evangelism. Some of you will, like, tilt your head like, okay, I I don't see that. Okay? And, And so you have to be honest about who you are. What is your DNA? Next question, what are your values? DNA and values are not always the same thing. What are your passions? Okay, these are all intentional questions that you ask, and then you form the matrix. Where do these things converge to articulate who you are? Okay? Then the question is, do these converge? And when they converge, what does it look like? Do you have a mission statement and what is it? If you asked 50% of your staff to write down, it doesn't matter if you have four staff or 400 staff, but you ask half your staff to unsolicited write down what is the, if they could craft a mission statement for your church, what would it look like? So that's why I have the whiteboard up here. Sometimes we do that exercise. If we have a group that works at the same church, I just have them sticking on there with sticky notes. And it's funny to see how different it is. And the senior pastor sometimes gets frustrated because he's like, has no one been listening to me? And it's, no, this is good stuff, you know. This helps you too to say, who are we? Right? If, if your staff doesn't know who you are, don't assume the people in the church know who you are. Okay? Um. This is probably the biggest question. What is the Holy Spirit saying? So this is our rule. We're going to design and prepare. And hear hear my heart on this. As though there is no Holy Spirit. But we're going to engage as though there is nothing but the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people just say, it's almost like blaming God. We we just want to listen to the Lord. And it's an excuse not to plan. The Bible says, in his heart, a man plans his ways, but it's the Lord that directs our steps. The Lord does not direct no plan. you got to give God something, even if it's the wrong thing. God will tell you, no, that's not what I want you to do. Go back. Do something else. Right? None of us have a 100% hotline in hearing the voice of God clearly. It has to go through our human filter, our own prejudices, our own concerns, right? So you have to plan and then submit it to the Holy Spirit and say, God, speak to us. Is this who you want us to be? Is this how you want us to engage? Okay, The question. Have you? You have to answer this question for yourself and for your congregants. What is the value of short-term teams and the financial implications? You have to construct a theological answer to that question. We're going to look at trends here in one minute, in a few minutes. Um, this is the biggest question I get from people: Why should we give to short-term missions if we have twenty people going to India at thirty-five hundred dollars a pop? shouldn't we just give $70,000 to the local pastors? Couldn't they do more with that? Right? Valid question. The problem with even asking that question for me comes down to this idea that God doesn't have enough resources to do everything. God has enough resources to do all of it. Short-term teams, long-term teams, missionaries, church planting, locals. We have to teach people in other countries to raise up missionaries. And we can't teach them how to do that when we don't model it ourselves. Part of sending teams, this is the most exciting thing I get to see around the world, is when we take a team to India from our church and we love our pastors there and we work with them. And we encourage them, you need to do the same. And a year or two later, they call me and say, we're sending our first team of Indians to go to Nepal and be missionaries. Short term. This wasn't given to Americans, right? This was given to everybody. Cambodian teams, the movement, the the back to Jerusalem movement out of China into the Middle East, The Chinese church is responding with scores and scores of people going on short-term missions and career missions. There are two categories of engagement that you will find in engaging your church. The first one, and this falls under the category of short-term missions, is what I call stimulation. It is to stimulate among your people a passion and an awareness of missions. The second one is specialization, and that comes into your strategy and your actual grid of engagement. Okay, so here are a few trends that I just want us to talk about and be aware of as we look at our shaping world and ever-changing world. There is right now when we look at the landscape across the United States, Europe, Australia, when I, what I consider the West, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, countries that are Western in their thinking, there is a shifting away from global engagement to local engagement. Okay? Um, I mean, that's just a reality. We actually have less money going to missions than we've had five years ago, ten years ago. And part, and so the question becomes, why and is that a good thing? Part of the why, why do you think that trend? Because this is, a, this is a, a trend. I mean, it's not something we're, we're crafting. I mean, it's just something we're recognizing. Why do you think that's happening? Or, and do you agree with it? Who disagrees with it? I mean, if you disagree, I would love to hear your opinion. Why do you think we are now spending more money on local engagement than we are on global engagement? Yes. Okay, the lost right there. Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. What else? Yeah, it is. Here, here is a couple things I perceive, right? Opinion. So please, this is just my opinion, right? And their opinions are like flies, right? I mean, it's just my opinion. Number one, we have not engaged in our local community as part of our church's DNA. We have even looked at our local engagement as missional activity. And so now we're trying to, to come up with how do we as a church engage in our city? And the only way we know how is because missionaries have done it. And so we capture the mission's DNA and funding to help reach our city reality. Your church, if your church gives 10% to missions, the argument would be that you have 90% left to reach your city. Right? The trend, however, is that we take from the 10% still as churches around the world and now plowed into our city. Part of it is because of fear. Mass immigration, especially in the United States. Colorado Springs now has been selected one of 10 cities in the United States to receive over 150,000 Syrian refugees. The landscape of our city is about to change dramatically. Right? Then... Back to what you said, right? We think the last day right here. We can reach Iranians now in our city. We can reach Afghanis in our city. We can reach Tibetans in our city. Uh, uh, Mongolians in our city. We can reach almost every nation in our city. So why go? And that is a crossroad that you're going to have to navigate head on and defend. Because I believe with all my heart... What we have done with Scripture is we've taken a progressive view, and Scripture was never written in a linear fashion. Scripture was not written within a Greco-Roman context where things were uh, extrapolated linear. So when the Bible talks about going to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, it's not a linear progression. Actually, in the Greek, there's a word that says both and. Go to both, do all of these things at one time, it's not a linear progression. And so I hear pastors say this, until we have reached our Jerusalem, we're not going to go to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And I believe with all my heart, it flies in the face of Scripture. We are the number one nation when it comes to resources around the world. I want to show a quick little video, and then I'm going to capture um, a few more ideas about our uh, city strategy, our national strategy, and the global Strategy. Are you ready? Okay.
1: Jesus told us 2,000 years ago that our mission is to go and make disciples of all nations. He also promised us that only after we accomplish that task will we receive the blessing of His return. So, how are we doing accomplishing our mission? To answer that, Let's classify the 7 billion people on the earth today into three groups. Let's start with the Christians. About 33% of the world's population would identify itself as Christian. We call this segment of the population, World C. C for Christian. It's important to remember that not all of the people that fall into World C are true believers in Christ. They merely identify themselves as Christian because of nominal belief in Jesus or because they live in a country where everyone is considered Christian, so they would do the same. Next, there's the 38% of the world that has access to the gospel but has chosen not to follow Jesus. They have Bibles in their language, churches nearby, friends or coworkers who are potentially Christians, or access to other Christian resources in their language. These people have access to the good news but just haven't acted on it yet. This segment of the population is called World B. That leaves us with 29% of the world, just over one out of every four people on this planet who not only have never heard of Jesus, they have no chance of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. They have no access to the gospel, no Bibles, no churches, no believers nearby, no chance to learn about Jesus. We call that 29% World A. Now on to missionaries. Only one out of every 1,800 Christians in World C decides to serve as a cross-cultural missionary. So, we can pull 400,000 missionaries out of that World C population. That's our total cross-cultural missionary force worldwide. Did you know that 72% of all our missionaries are going to World C? That's right! The vast majority of the missionaries being sent out are going to the people of the world that have Bibles and established churches. 25% of the missionaries are sent to World B, where there is already some access to the church and to the Bible. That leaves only 3% of the total missionary force to handle all of World A, the section of the population without any chance of hearing about Jesus. 29% of the world has no way to hear the gospel, but we're sending only a tiny portion of our Christian workers to them. What about finances? Annually, all those Christians in World C earn a total of $42 trillion, and together they give about $700 billion to Christian causes each year. That includes everything. Christian nonprofits, churches, youth programs, missions, etc. Can you do the math? Less than 2% of Christian income is being given to Christ's causes. Out of that $700 billion given to all Christian causes, only $45 billion is given to missions specifically. That's a little over 6%. In fact, there is more money reported embezzled from the church each year than is given to missions. Remember those 400,000 missionaries? We have $45 billion to support them and their cross-cultural work, but how exactly is it allocated? Well, $39 billion goes to World C every year. Yep, 87% of that mission's money is being spent in areas of the world that have Bibles and churches available. 5.4 billion, or 12%, goes to World B each year, those that have access to the gospel message but have rejected it. That leaves only $450 million, or 1% of all missions money, going to World A, the least reached people of the world. To put that into perspective, annually Americans spend more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than get sent to World A. To summarize, only 3% of our missionary force, armed with only 1% of missions giving, is going out to reach the 2 billion people who don't have access to the gospel. 2 billion people are still waiting for the good news of Jesus Christ. So here's a question for you. What are you going to do to change that?
0: Okay, um, that video is available like joshuaproject.net, I think, or .org. And you can get that. I quickly, before we wrap up, want to do a couple of things. I want to just tell you what our matrix looks like and how we got it. And I want to give you a little bit of what the world we live in looks like and for you to consider. If you're going to be proactive in designing your missions grid and intentional engagement, it will behoove you to know where the world is heading. Okay? So we estimate about 1 billion people will come to faith in the next 10 years. We will need two million churches to accommodate the explosive growth rate of the kingdom. So we need to mobilize resources into more countries and more remote areas than ever before. Christianity will gain. Now, this is going to sound super confusing. I promise you. The next three points are going to sound so contradictory. But if you listen to them, it will make sense. They, They go together. Christianity will gain three times more new converts than any other religion in the world in the coming decades. The key there is new, three times more new converts, yet it will also lose 11 times more of its current members than any other religion, which means the new converts will basically be a wash, but that we will need resources for new converts. By 2050, at 2.92 billion, Christians will make up 31.4% of the global population, the same as we do today, by percentage. This is if all things remain the same, right? This is just trends based on what we know today. Meanwhile, Muslims will shoot up from 23.3% of the global population in 2010 to almost 30% by 2050. Most future Christians, and this is important to know, will be living in Africa. The rate of Christianity there is expected to double from 517 million today to about 1.1 billion by 2050. Sub-Sahara Africa, now home to a quarter of the world's Christians, will hold almost 40%. That means get engaged in sub-Saharan Africa. In the U.S., there is a growing number of what they call religiously unaffiliated. The rate of conversion is strong. 61 million are expected to what they call religiously unaffiliated by 2050. The number of unaffiliated in the United States is, to, is expected to grow from 16% to 26%. That's growth it comes straight from Christianity, which is said to drop in the United States from 78% to 66%. In fact, what they call the nuns, people that have no, aff- uh, not nuns like in Catholic nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns, they don't affiliate with anything, are poised to become the majority religion in France, New Zealand, and the Netherlands over the next four decades. It's called secularization, right? Becoming a secular society. Um, so here is our matrix. What we've done is we have broken up our matrix into three categories. First, we have our values matrix. What, what are our values? Then we looked at demographics. Where do we want to work in the world? And the third thing is domains. Through which avenues do we want to engage in missions? So the first one is we have six values. One is internal, five external. One is an internal value that defines missions for us at New Life Church. And that value simply says this. We want to introduce every member of New Life Church to a missions experience. And because it's a stated value, we do intentional things to accomplish it. Doesn't mean everybody has to go on a short-term trip. But they have to be exposed to missions and what God's doing around the world. So we have had now for seven years, every single Sunday an outreach Sunday school that has about 100 people in it. Every single Sunday for the last seven years, except Christmas and New Year. but you know what I mean. Nonstop for seven years. And we bring in missionaries. We bring in experts. We bring in different people so people can just hear what God's doing around the world. And that class has a big revolving crowd, a good stable crowd, but there's a lot of new people that always come in and just hear what God's doing, okay? We have trips. We have conferences. We have... Th- Moments, we have videos, we have songs. John and his team write songs that have a missional feel to it. All those things become embers and threads to introduce our people to a mission's reality. Flags in all our buildings. These things are not happenstance. All these things are very intentional things we have done to say we are about reaching the nations of the world. Okay. Our five means of engagement to become what I call the hinges on the door in a sense they are the two primary ones for us is church planting and leadership training that's our number one value number two widows and orphans so if what if somebody talks to me and it doesn't hit those two things we're not going to do it that's that's what we do as a church now here are the other three values that coincide with that And this one's going to cause a lot of controversy, and you can come talk to me afterwards, okay? Going to the Jew first. It's a methodology of doing missions, we believe. It's how we do missions. The next one is the sanctity of human life. That's divided into three categories. The plight of the unborn, human trafficking, and genocide. However, those become functions of the local churches that we're planting We don't do those just stand alone. And then the last one, because it's really part of our DNA, is the unreached and unengaged people groups. We choose to go where it's not convenient, where it's not easy, to Sudan, to um, Myanmar, to Northern India, to the unreached peoples of the world. Northern India has more than half the unreached people groups on the planet. We go... Yes, do we go to Honduras? Do we go to Guatemala? Do we go to South Africa? Do we go to Haiti? Of course. But that is stimulation. It's not engagement. Okay? So those are our values as a church in where we engage. So when you talk to me on the grid, I will check where do you fit in our grid. The next layer is what we call demographics. We have prayed and asked God... Where should we work? So Northern India, China, Southern Africa. And I wrote about a 12 or 20, I think it's 20 page white paper on why South Africa, why Northern India, why China. So when I sit down with someone, I can give them clear articulation that China wasn't just the popular place to go, that we have articulated thought through methodology of why China is primary to us. Okay, You're going to get the matrix so you can see where we work. The last thing is what many call the spheres of society, the seven mountains. We use that part of mobilizing our gifting in our church. So do we go through sports and recreation, business, family, uh, church, or you know, institution? And we use the seven mountains of society to determine how we engage in specific areas of the world. Now, seven mountains of society coincide with us recognizing what our DNA is and what our gifting is. So arts is a big thing for us, right? We're not quite where we want to be, but mobilizing the artists in our church, the worship leaders in our church, the, the songwriters in our church. That's a big part of our DNA, and we're working towards that. Have we achieved everything that we want to in our grid? Absolutely not. It's a work in progress. Okay, so it's 10 till 3. Let me give at least five minutes for questions, and then we can dismiss, and I'll, we'll have all the paperwork available in the back. Has this been helpful at all? Okay. Okay, any questions, comments? None. Yes, sir. very carefully, honestly. I have, I have worked with churches where they just come to the realization, and, and I always tell them, listen, you didn't get in this pickle overnight. Don't make changes overnight. Right? You can't just turn a ship because people fly off. You're going to lose congregation members because you have to realize, if your church has been engaged in missions for 10 years or more, people in your church have fallen in love with the people you work with. And you have to handle that with a pastoral heart very carefully. If had one pastor say to me, I'm just gonna send everybody a ten thousand dollar check and cut them all and start over. And I'm like, dude, you'll send them a ten thousand dollar check and have no church next year. Because your congregation's gonna leave. Because you have to understand people are vested. So what you have to do is craft your engagement, explain it to your church, get your church to buy in to this is who we are and this is what we're going to do. So that when you start cutting people, and I highly recommend doing it regressively, so that you cut them over a four-month period with about a six-month advance notice, 25% over four months. So it takes about a year to two years to truly make a shift. Get your church to buy into where we're going, why we're going there. Therefore, we have to make these changes so people understand. If you don't explain it to your church... They're going to feel you're just callous and you don't, you know, it's just a reckless move. Does that answer your question? Okay, if any of you at any point in time want us to engage with you, you're more than welcome to call us. We'd love to talk to you. If you want us to come out, we'd love to travel and get away from Colorado Springs even though it's an amazing city. We haven't seen all of the United States We'll come to your church. You don't even have to pay for us, right? We'll come and sit down and talk with you and design with you. This is stuff we love to do. So if New Life Church can serve you in any way, let us know and we'll love to walk with you and even learn from you. The only reason we know what we know is because we've had a lot of people tell us what we've done wrong, right? And we were willing to say, okay, tell us, right? And we certainly, we're still learning, right? We're not, we're trying to figure this thing out. But I can promise you we're much more intentional in what we do today than we were three years, four years, five years, and certainly eight years ago. Okay? Let me pray over you guys. And I hope you have a beautiful day tomorrow. This is the worst day we've had in the last 45 days. I'm not kidding. Okay, so Father, thank you for brothers and sisters and God churches represented here and the resources you've entrusted to us I pray God that you'll give us wisdom and understanding holy spirit that you'll speak clearly to us God give us courage to make difficult decisions and to obey your voice God give us clear understanding of where you're working and how we should engage I pray that everybody here will have good team members come alongside them God that will speak wisdom and discernment into their strategy. Um, God, bless our efforts. We bless your name and I pray that everyone here will truly encounter Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, God the Father at this conference. In Jesus' name. Amen.